One of the most important, the most frequent themes in the Bible, especially the New Testament, is the theme of faith. It's a massive theme. The Greek word for faith shows up 244 times in the New Testament alone, which is a lot. That's a lot of using one word. Massive theme. And faith is connected to so many other important themes in the Bible, so many aspects of the Christian life. Let me just give you a quick survey of this. This is not even close to exhaustive. Just a few examples. Romans 14, Paul tells us that you need faith in order to obey. You can't do anything obeying God apart from faith. Hebrews 11 says you need faith to understand God's wisdom. Later in Hebrews 11, it says you need faith to please God. In fact, it says without faith, it's impossible to please God. 1 Corinthians 16 says you need faith to be strong and courageous. Ephesians 4 says you need faith to be united with other Christians. Think about that. Think about the importance of being united in relationships. He says you can't do it without faith. Ephesians 6 says you need, be, you need faith to be protected against Satan. 1 Timothy says you need faith to understand God's plan and God's mission. And it's not just you go and look at these passages, read them for yourself. It's not just that faith helps you a little bit with these things. Like you get a little speed boost. That's not what's going on. So, you know, I'm pretty strong and I'm pretty courageous. And then I added in a little faith and whoa, now, I'm, now I really got it. That's not what it's saying. Or, you know, I was really doing pretty good obeying God and I sprinkled a little faith on top and then look out. You know, I went from like a seven to like a 9.5. That's not how it works at all. What all of these texts are saying about faith is that you can't obey without faith. You cannot understand God's mission apart from faith. You can't be strong and courageous, not in any real sense, without faith. It is a requirement. So it's a big deal. But for as much as faith is emphasized and taught in the Bible, there is no single book that talks about it more than Romans. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, one of his main goals is that you and I would understand the importance of faith. And the most important reality of faith, it's connected to all of these other truths and all of these other aspects of the Christian life. But the most important reality of faith, more important than anything else we just listed, is that you need faith to be saved from your sin, reconciled to God, and given eternal life. That's how important it is. This is why the reformers, they said that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That means without faith, no salvation. Without faith, you can't be made righteous. Without faith, you can't know God. It's even more significant than that. It's not just that you need faith for salvation. Paul says you have to have faith all by itself. Faith alone, in Christ alone, totally apart from good works. So if there's a person who thinks, yeah, you know, I'm doing pretty good, obeying God, following all the rules, and then I'll add faith on top of that, Paul says you don't have faith at all. At least not in Jesus. This is the conclusion that he arrives at at the end of Romans chapter 3, verse 28. He says, for we conclude 
that a person is justified. That means made righteous, saved from sin, reconciled to God. A person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. It's a big deal. Now that means you want to know what it is. You're going to want to know what faith is. We talked about this a couple weeks ago at the beginning of Romans chapter 4. If you weren't here for that sermon, I would encourage you to go back, review that text, and listen to that sermon. Paul answers the question, what is faith? And what does faith do? But there are two additional very important questions that Paul answers about faith in this section, and that's what we're going to cover this morning. So this is going to be our outline. Two questions. First question, why is salvation only through faith? Okay, he's hammered this point home. Salvation only through faith in Christ. But why? And second question, how does faith work? We know what it is. We know what it does. But what are the mechanics? How do you do it? (laughs) Okay, question one. Why is salvation only through faith? Have you ever wondered that? Especially if you've been in church for a while, if you've grown up in church, you've probably heard this talked about over and over and over, that you're saved by the grace of God through faith in Christ. But why did God set it up that way? Why didn't God allow us to sort of turn the dial to expert mode on life and just figure it out ourselves? It's like you could either do it by faith in the grace of God, or you could do it yourself, you know? Just work really hard, follow all the rules, see if you can make it. Or maybe there's some other means. Why is it only through faith? Well, Paul tells us. Verse 16, he says, this is why. This is why I love Paul. (laughs) He just makes it so clear what he's talking about. This is why the promise is by faith. So that it may be according to grace. To guarantee it to all the descendants, not only to the one who is of the law, but also to the one who is of Abraham's faith. He is the father of of us all. Why did God make salvation only by faith? Paul says there's three reasons, very important reasons. First, so it could be given by grace. Why did God make salvation only by faith? So it could be given by grace. This is what he says in verse 16. This is why the promise is by faith, so that it may be according to grace. We talked all about grace a few weeks ago. What is grace? Grace The Greek word charis, it just simply means God's loving kindness, God's favor. And in the context of the New Testament, almost always when the authors talk about grace, they're talking about God's loving kindness given to you as a free gift. That's what it is. It is God's favor offered to you as a free gift. Now, what's the gift? The gift is the righteousness of Jesus. That's what it is. He says, here you go. It's the righteousness of Jesus. In order to have a relationship with God, in order to be with God in heaven forever, you need righteousness. This is Paul's point in the first three chapters of Romans. The problem is you don't have it. What you have is unrighteousness. In order to be united with God in a relationship, you need to be perfect and pure like God. This is what God said to the Israelites in the desert. He says, be holy like I'm holy. So you need to be perfect. You need to be pure. You need to be holy like God. The problem is that what you are is imperfect and impure and sinful. And so God's gift to you, God's solution for this problem is his righteousness. He says, you can have it. You can have my 
righteousness. And the way God makes the unrighteous person righteous is through substitution. His own perfect righteous son, Jesus, took your sin and was punished on the cross, even though he was innocent. And he did that so that you could have his righteousness and be set free, even though you're guilty. There's an exchange, a substitution that takes place at the cross. And this is the gospel. This is the good news. God offers you forgiveness, love, mercy, relationship, and eternal life as a free gift through punishing his own son in your place. That is grace. That's grace. But why is faith necessary to receive that gift of salvation? Well, he tells us. Go back to verse 13. He says, For the promise to Abraham, or to his descendants, that he would inherit the world, was not through the law. Now, this promise is synonymous with entrance into the kingdom. The promise to Abraham, he's already sort of laid this out. He's going to get into it more. It's synonymous with becoming a Christian, being saved, given the righteousness of God, reconciled to God. So the promise to Abraham, or to his descendants, that he would inherit the world, was not through the law. Not through the rules, not through the rituals, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. If those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made empty and the promise nullified because the law produces wrath. In other words, if salvation wasn't by faith, you could never have it. Wouldn't be available. (laughs) Wouldn't be on the menu. It would be utterly unattainable. So the promise Paul is referring to is the promise that Abraham was going to have descendants who would outnumber the stars. This is what God tells Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. And Paul's already made it clear this is not primarily about genetic descent. This is not a literal genealogy. It's not about coming from Abraham's bloodline. It's about knowing God. It's about being a part of the people of God. That's what makes you an heir. And even people who aren't of the bloodline of Abraham can be part of his family through faith in Jesus, through receiving the righteousness of God. That's what makes you an heir. But Paul says, if being an heir or a descendant of Abraham is dependent upon your obedience to the law, if that's how it works, then God's promise is already broken. His promise can't be fulfilled because it would depend on you. And God doesn't make promises that depend on you. (laughs) When God makes a promise, he makes it based on his character and his will and his power and his plan. But if it depends on you and your character and your power and your will, then it's over before it even starts. Because nobody can perfectly obey the law. Nobody can even come close. Not even close. And Paul, then he makes this statement that's really helpful. He says the law, it doesn't produce righteousness. That's not what it does. It only makes you guilty. And the way the Jews during this time viewed the law, so this would be the law of Moses, the Old Testament, particularly the first five books, and particularly the books of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And they looked at all of the rules, all the commands in the law, and they saw that like a ladder. It's like a ladder. I was on a ladder yesterday. We were taking down the Christmas trees on top of the vestibule. The way a ladder works, very simple, very straightforward, very intuitive. There's a rung. You step on the rung, you go up. 
Look at, okay, there's another one. Step on that one, you go up. Kind of like stairs. This is the way they viewed the law. It's like a ladder that you can climb to get to heaven. And every act of obedience, it's like another step up the ladder. So every time I obey the Sabbath, observe the Sabbath, boom, a little closer to God. Every time I make a sacrifice, a little closer to God. Every time I say a prayer, I'm a little closer to God. Every time I do what God asks me to do, I move a little bit further up the ladder. But what Paul is saying is that's completely the wrong understanding of the law. The law is not designed to make you righteous. And in many ways, the law is not really designed to make you unrighteous. The law is designed to reveal what you already are. That's what it's for. It's kind of like those markers. Have you ever gone to into Casey's or Quick Trip? And nobody uses cash anymore, but I, recently I went into, I think, it was, I think it was Quick Trip, and I needed to make change. I had like a 50 or $100 bill, I don't remember, but I, I needed some change, some smaller denominations. And so I gave them the bill, and they take out this little marker, and they mark the bill with a marker. Do you know what they're doing there? They're testing to see if it's counterfeit or not. And so I did a little research on this. The way this works is the, the starch in the paper of a counterfeit bill will interact with this marker and then it'll leave a mark. So the marker, if you mark a genuine bill, it will leave no mark or a very faint yellow mark. But if the bill is counterfeit, it'll leave a black or a dark purple mark. So the marker is designed to show, to demonstrate the nature of the bill. And trying to earn your salvation through obeying the law it's like taking a counterfeit $100 bill and coloring it all over from corner to corner with a counterfeit marker and hoping that the result of that is that it changes into a real hundred. <laughs> I mean, think about how silly that is. Like I just, if I just color this whole thing in with the counterfeit marker, the counterfeit bill will turn, boom, into a real $100 bill. That's craziness. The more you color the counterfeit bill, the more obvious it is that it's not real. You just get this dark purple you know, piece of money. Yep, it's totally fake. It's totally obvious because the marker can't change the nature of the bill. It just reveals what it is. And the law cannot make you righteous. But it can, and it does show how unrighteous you are. So if you want to earn righteousness, salvation by works... Paul says, you'll never have it. You'll never have it. It has to be received as a gift by faith. Next, why did God make salvation only by faith? Number two, so it could be guaranteed. This is what he says. This is why the promise is by faith, to guarantee it to all the descendants. This is not the only place in the New Testament that uses this language. In Ephesians 1, 13, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. What Paul is saying is when you became a Christian, okay, so when you heard the gospel, when you trusted in what Jesus did for you on the cross, when you believed, when you put your faith in him, you were changed. You were made righteous. You were reconciled to God. And when that happened, God did something. 
He put His Spirit, His Holy Spirit, in you. He sealed you with the Spirit of God. He united you with His own Spirit. And that does so many things for the Christian as far as power from God, intimacy with God, knowledge of God, the ability to understand the Scriptures. But what he says here is part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life is to guarantee your inheritance. Meaning, you don't have all of it yet. You're not in heaven yet. You don't have your new body yet. You don't see God in all of His glory face to face yet, but you will one day. And how do you know you will? Because you have a spirit. It's guaranteed. So here's a question. Common question. Can a person, after being born again, becoming a Christian, they're cleansed of sin, they're given the gift of righteousness, eternal life, they enter into a relationship with God. Can that person lose their salvation? Okay, so you lose the Spirit of God. You lose forgiveness. You become guilty again. You lose your inheritance in heaven. Can you get kicked off the team, in other words? The Bible is very clear on this question. The answer is no. We see that here. We see it in Romans 4. And it's not just because the Bible says clearly that your salvation is guaranteed. It's because of the purpose of your salvation. We did this little mini-series a few weeks ago on knowing God. You have to ask yourself the question occasionally, why did God do all of this? Why does God offer you salvation and His righteousness as a free gift? Why did God send His Son to suffer and live as a human being and die on a cross and become guilty of your sin? Why did He do all of that? Is it just so you can go to heaven when you die? (laughs) That's part of it, but that's a small part of it. It's because He wants a relationship with you. He wants you to know Him. This is why you exist. You exist to know God. You exist to enjoy God. You exist to glorify God forever. The Bible says God wants you to know Him like a son knows his father. That's incredible. God wants you to know Him like a wife knows her husband. God wants you to know Him like a sheep knows its shepherd. And these images are all over the Scriptures. And what they are images of is love and trust and intimacy and security. That's what God is after with you. It's an intimate, joy-filled relationship. Now, in order for that relationship to exist, there are two necessary ingredients, and these are universal. So if you're going to have a healthy, intimate relationship with anybody, God or any person, you have to have these two ingredients. There's probably more necessary ingredients, but these two are a minimum requirement. What are the two requirements for healthy, intimate relationships? First, you must be fully known. You must be fully known. This is the essence of intimacy. I know you, you know me. Mind, heart, soul, inside and out. And the more we know, the closer we become. This is the way intimacy works. So we want to know each other's values and priorities and likes and dislikes. We want to know each other's fears and hopes and dreams. You're going to want to know my stories, my memories, my experiences, both of joy and of pain, both of fondness and of regret. 
You're going to want to know my strengths, my accomplishes, but also my weaknesses and my failures. You got to have all of it, the whole package. And you guys know this, if you hide from someone, if you lie to someone, if you're fake with someone so that they don't fully know you, then you're not going to feel close with them. And they won't feel close with you. So that's obvious. You must be fully known if you want to have a healthy, intimate relationship. But there's a second ingredient that has to accompany being fully known, which is you must be fully accepted. You must be fully known and you must be fully accepted. Now, let me be clear. I don't mean accepted in the sense that someone has to be okay with the things that you say or do or attitudes you have that are morally wrong. That's not what I mean. Or that are personally hurtful to them. What I mean by accepted is the posture in a relationship that I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to love you no matter what. I am so committed to this relationship that even if you sin against me, even if you do terrible things, say terrible things, I'm not going anywhere. I'll still love you. Even if it's really ugly. Even if it's really bad. That's what I mean by accepted. I accept all the parts of you. The strengths and the weaknesses. The good things and the bad things. And this is why sin breaks relationships. I think maybe the worst part about sin is that it breaks relationships. The reason your relationship with God is broken in the first place is because of sin. That's why. And the reason sin breaks relationships is that sin actually makes you unacceptable. That's what it does. So you want to have a relationship with someone, you need to be fully known, fully accepted. But the problem is, sin makes you unacceptable. You remember the first thing that Adam and Eve did in the garden after they sinned for the first time? Genesis chapter 3, what did they do? The first thing they did is they covered themselves. And then they hid. They covered themselves, and then they hid. Now, why would they do that? Was it because they were cold? in the Garden of Eden? Nope. Perfect climate. Perfect humidity levels. No UV rays. I mean, it was, there's no sunburn. There's no elements. That, it wasn't because they were cold. Was it because they didn't like the way their bodies looked? That's the reason I put clothes you know, on. That's why most of us put clothes on. <laughs> no. They had utterly perfect bodies. They were, they were the most physically perfect human beings who ever lived. There's no shame about what they look like physically. And there's no other people to see them anyway. It's not why they covered themselves. It's not why they hid. The reason is because of shame. They knew morally they were unacceptable. They had done something that made them unacceptable. They were unrighteous, and they knew they deserved God's judgment, and they deserved His rejection. But what you see playing out then is that God still accepts them. God accepted them in spite of their sin. Now, how did He do it? Well, He confronted their sin. He condemned them for their sin, and then He covered them. He covered them with animal skin clothing. 
which means he had to take the life of an innocent creature. He made them righteous through a blood sacrifice so the relationship could be restored. And this is just a faint image of what he actually did for them, which is he sent his son. He sent his son to die on the cross, even for Adam and Eve, so that that relationship could be restored, fully known and fully accepted. Now, if you believe that salvation through Jesus' blood is not guaranteed that you can lose it, then you will have a very hard time knowing God. You will have a very hard time enjoying intimacy with Christ. Because instead of intimacy, you will live in fear. (laughs) You live in constant fear. Am I doing enough? Am I obedient enough? Am I in God's will? Does God still find me acceptable? Is He about to reject me? You live in constant fear. And this isn't just a New Testament idea. When God is telling Israel about the coming of the new covenant through the prophet Jeremiah, He says this, Jeremiah 31, they shall all know me. So He says, in the new covenant, when the Messiah comes, they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. This is new. Now, we think this way just sort of, we take it for granted. But, but under the old covenant, it was Moses, it was Samuel, it was David. There was very few select people who had this intimate, close access to God. Only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, and only once a year. And so there was this distance and sort of degrees of knowledge and interaction and intimacy with God. But he says in the new covenant, everyone, everyone's going to know me from the least to the greatest. Everyone in the nation of Israel is going to have this incredible, restored, intimate relationship with God. Why? He says, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That's Old Testament. Fully known, fully accepted in Christ. But it's only possible through faith. If it's based on your performance, you could never be fully accepted. And salvation can't be guaranteed. It must be through trusting in His performance. Receiving the righteousness of Jesus as a free gift. So why did God make salvation only by faith? So it could be by grace, so it could be guaranteed, and thirdly, so it could be global. He finishes verse 16 like this. This is why the promise is by faith. To guarantee it to all all the descendants. Now, what does that mean? Not only to the one who is of the law, but also to the one who is of Abraham's faith. This is a distinction between ethnic Jews, the nation of Israel, genealogical descendants of Abraham. That's the people who are of the law. So he's using that term in a little bit different sense here, but also to the one who is of Abraham's faith. So these are non-Jews who believe the way Abraham believed. And that's why he says he is the father of us all. He doesn't mean all Jews. He means all Christians, Jews and Gentiles alike. So if hypothetically salvation could come through the law and it could come through circumcision, then it would only ever be for the nation of Israel because they have the law and they have circumcision and no one else does. But Paul says that's not the plan. And this was never the plan. You go read the prophets. This was never the plan. You read the words of Jesus. This is not the plan, that he's saving only the nation of Israel. And we thank God for that. 
I don't know if there's any ethnic Jews here. I don't think so. (laughs) Or very few. So we thank God for this. So that salvation could be global. So that's why salvation is only through faith. And Paul says, talking about Abraham, he is the father of us all, which means that all Christians everywhere for all time hold this one thing in common. So it doesn't matter what your gender is. doesn't matter what your age is. doesn't matter what your socioeconomic status is. doesn't matter your ethnicity, your nationality, what language you speak, what time in history you live. All Christians hold this in common. They have faith like Abraham. Every one of us. Which leads to the next question Paul answers. Okay, how does faith work? How does this work? And here's the big idea. I'm going to give you a shortcut to understanding, I think, Paul's thought process and what he's laying out here in the end of chapter 4. This is the big idea. Faith is a rational process of the mind. I think that's what he's driving at. How does it work? Faith is a rational process of the mind. John Stott says this in his commentary on Romans. He says, faith is not burying our heads in the sand and screwing ourselves up to believe what we know is not true, or even whistling in the dark to keep our spirits up. On the contrary, faith is a reasoning trust. I love that. Very simple. Faith is a reasoning trust. And then he adds this, there can be no believing without thinking. There can be no believing without thinking. And this is exactly what Paul intends to show us through the example of Abraham. We're going to use this section to frame our application. So here it is. Faith is a rational process of the mind. But then what is that process? Look at Abraham, verse 18. He believed, hoping against hope, so that he became the father of many nations. According to what had been spoken, so will your descendants B, step one in the process of faith, know the promises of God. This is step one. Seems simple. Know the promises of God. The example Paul gives us is that Abraham believed that God was going to give him a son through his wife, Sarah. Now, why did he believe that? Especially when you consider the circumstances. They're old. They've been married 70 years, 60 years maybe 50 years when God first comes to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. So they're old and they're they're past childbearing age and they've never been able to conceive. And yet God, I'm sorry, Abraham believes that God is going to give them a son. Why does he believe that? It's very simple. Because God told him he was going to. It's not wishful thinking. God initiated and God said, Abraham, you're going to have a son. You're going to have a son, and it's not going to be through your servant. It's going to be through your wife, Sarah. So the idea is you can't believe what you don't know. You can't trust what you don't know. If faith is a thought process, that means it requires data. It requires information to think about. You need to know what you can expect from God if you're going to trust him. And so many Christians have no idea. They don't know. I don't know what I can expect from God. Or they have severely perverted ideas of what they can expect from God. They have all kinds of misaligned expectation based on lack of knowledge of his promises. And when that happens, if that is the situation you are in, you will be extremely disappointed. 
You're going to be extremely disappointed and your faith will be crushed. Or the other possibility, which is probably even worse, is you will develop false ideas about God when those expectations are met even though they're not being met by God. So an example of this, there's millions of people around the world right now who would, who would proclaim the same gospel that we would. In essence, they would say salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, Christ alone. But then they have all of these expectations that the purpose of the Christian life, what you can expect from God, is he wants to make you incredibly wealthy. And he wants to make sure that you're never in physical pain. You're always totally healthy and prosperous and living your best life right now, heaven on earth. But Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross and die. How does that square? And so they develop all these false ideas about who God is and what he's doing and what his mission is that are not rooted in the scriptures because they're not promises that he makes. So what can you expect from God? Let me just give you a quick sample. This was literally, I was studying the passage and I was thinking about reflecting on the promises of God. And these were just some that came to the top of my mind, not even close to an exhaustive list. And I just thought, I thought, God, what can I expect from you? And I thought about some of the promises of God that have been meaningful in my life over the years, just from the New Testament, by the way. Here's just a really quick list. If you're a Christian, God promises you a changed life. He says, I'll change you. From the inside out, I will make you over the course of time more and more like Jesus in your character. I'll make you a different person. I'll make you a way better person. That's a promise in Ephesians 4. God promises his people provision. Jesus in Matthew He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things. All your basic needs will be added to you as well. He doesn't promise wealth, but he says, I'll take care of you. I'll take care of you. You can trust me. First Corinthians, he promises comfort to his people. God promises to give you wisdom. I don't know what to do, God. He says, ask me. I'll show you. Give you wisdom. God promises joy. Man, that's exciting. He says, you can have joy. Lasting, transcendent joy. He promises protection for his people. To guard your heart spiritually, to protect you from error and from believing lies and from unnecessary discouragement. He'll guard you. He promises his personal presence. Think about this. Jesus says, I will be with you. To the end of the age, I'll never leave you. He's right there. The Spirit of God lives in you. He promises to give you mission, purpose, fruitful labor that has eternal value. He promises to discipline you. We don't think about that one too much, but that is a great gift. God, if you're one of his children, he says, I'll keep you in line. (laughs) I'll keep you in bounds. And it won't feel good all the time, like just when you discipline your children, but it's because he loves us. He promises, if you're a Christian, he's going to put in you growing love for him. That your love for him, it's going to grow and grow and culminate when you see him face to face. And there's many, many, many more promises. This is not an exhaustive list. The point here is just to show you that God's promises are 
everywhere in the Bible. And if you want to walk in faith, you need to know what they are. You need to know what you can expect from him. Now, that's not all Abraham did. He knew the promise, yes, but what's the next step in the process of faith? Number two, think about the promises of God. You need to know the promises of God. That's not enough. You need to think about the promises of God. You have to think, okay, what are they? Okay, I understand that. Now, how does that interact with my specific situation? How do these promises impact my circumstances, my character flaws or strengths, my relationships, my life? And that is going to require some thinking. Look at how Abraham did this. Verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body to be already dead since he was about 100 years old. And also the deadness of Sarah's womb. They could never conceive. He did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. What? <laughs> Look, at, I, I love this phrase. It says, he considered. He considered. What does that mean? It means he looked at all the information and he thought about it. He looked at the data. Even, and especially in this case, the hard, cold, depressing, difficult facts of his life. He looked right at him. Okay, I'm like 100. <laughs> My wife is 90. We've been married at this point 80 years, maybe more. We've never had a child. Not even a miscarriage. Never been able to conceive at all. And he looks at these facts, and then he thinks about God's promise. God said he's going to give us a son. And the result is that his confidence grew. Why? Was he just a positive thinker? <laughs> you know, PMA, positive mental attitude. Glass half full kind of guy? No. So why did his confidence grow even though his circumstances regarding the promise of a son would lead him to become less confident over time? Paul tells us, verse 21, because he was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to do. This was his conclusion. Now, it's important you've got to go back and read Genesis, but the promise of a son was not the only promise God made to Abraham. He promised to give him a place to live in Canaan. He promised to bless him and go with him. He promised to make him prosperous. He promised to protect him. And Abraham had already been trusting these promises of God for decades. God said in Genesis 12, go to the land I will show you. Abraham went. Hundreds of miles. He left his home country. He, he went to a place where he probably didn't speak the language. He went to a place with a totally different culture, different gods. He's a complete foreigner. God says, I'll tell you, where you, I'll, I'll tell you when you get there. <laughs> where are we going, God? I'll tell you when we get there. Just go. Go to the place that I will show you. What did Abraham do? He trusted God. He went. And how did it work out? It worked out really well. And God was close to Abraham in relationship. God revealed himself to Abraham. God spoke directly to Abraham. God showed Abraham his power for years. Think about the battle against the four kings in Genesis 14. Think about the visitation from the angels and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and saving Lot and his daughters in Genesis 19. Abraham, I, I'm sure he thought about all of that. And he reasoned, God's never failed me before. God's made good on all of his other promises. Of course I can still trust him to give me a son. Look at what he's done for me. 
And this is the final step of the process and our final application. Number three, trust the promises of God. Know the promises of God. Think about the promises of God and trust the promises of God. Live accordingly. A lot of people think this is the hard part. And in one sense, it is. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where you have to actually make decisions. (laughs) You have to actually do things. They're oftentimes risky costly. They're scary, but I actually don't think this is the hardest part. All the hard work is done in steps one and two, in my opinion. And then, then the action, the trust, it is the natural byproduct. Action consistent with faith. And just like Abraham, it actually gets easier over time to obey God. It says that he was strengthened in his faith. It becomes more natural over time as you see God come through over and over and over, year after year, time after time. You're strengthened in your faith. Your trust for God grows. And it's not just because of God's promises being true, but it's because you will discover more and more the reality of who he is. Of who he is. Verse 17 says it this way, as it is written, I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed. Now, how does he describe him? The one who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. Abraham learned that God is infinitely powerful and infinitely reliable. Every person, no matter who you are, everyone lives according to promises all the time. You can't not. You you just think about when you go to the grocery store to pick up whatever, loaf of bread, and you're wondering, is this this bread gluten-free? Does this use enriched wheat flour or regular wheat flour? And you look at the ingredients on the bread, and it has all the information. Here's what's in it. There's like 1,500 ingredients. (laughs) Someone is making you a promise. And you're going to either accept it in faith, I believe that what's in the bread is what it actually says, or you're going to not believe it. No matter who you are, you live according to promises all the time. And so your flesh makes you promises. Your natural desires make you promises. Eat that second piece of cheesecake. It's going to be amazing. (laughs) That's a promise. Have you ever eaten a second piece of cheesecake? Your flesh lies to you, okay? (laughs) It's not going to feel good. Other people make you promises. Our culture makes you promises. Satan makes you promises. Did you know that? Genesis 3. You'll not surely die. God knows that your eyes will be opened and you'll become like him. Everyone lives according to promises. And all of those promises go back to a person. This is the way promises work. They go back to a person. One commentator said it like this, whether people keep their promises or not depends not only on their power, but also on their will to do so. To put it another way, behind all promises lies the character of the person who makes them. You only have five options, as far as I can tell. You can trust yourself. It's a bad strategy, okay? your flesh. You can trust other people. You can trust the world, the culture. You can trust the devil, or you can trust God. And only one of those five options, only one is infinitely powerful, infinitely reliable, and infinitely good. Paul says the person who trusts God 
God will make that person righteous. Verse 23, now it was credited to him, was not written for Abraham alone, but also for us. It will be credited to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of faith. God, that you've given us, just the fact that you've given us rational minds. And we can look at information and we can reason through it. And God, we're not saying that we can reason our way to you. God, even even faith is a gift. Even the information, the fact that we know the gospel, that we've heard the name of Jesus is a gracious gift. But Lord, I, I pray that we wouldn't squander it. We, we wouldn't squander the faith that you've given us. Help us to cultivate it. Help us to strengthen it. God, help us to think about your promises all the time, to dwell on them and apply them to our lives and live accordingly. God, thank you that when we do that, you are utterly reliable. You can do and you will do exactly what you say every time. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.